Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What is up, Messed Up listeners? Here we are again back with another episode of the Messed Up Podcast. Episode number 43 just finished a series up with the Los Angeles Dodgers four-game series, and as the Mets have been doing recently, didn't play very well. Didn't win many games. We did win one, but that's still not very many. We expect a little bit more from a team that we had higher hopes for, so me and James, of course, going to go through everything. Me, Draftneck Mark, Mark Luino, James, Jeter had no range, James Schiano. That's his name. I don't know why that was so weird. That was that was uncomfortably awkward. But hey, it's because the Mets are playing uncomfortably awkward baseball. It's just not very good. Not very good. Going to talk about the entire series. Going to talk about the preview of the Giants series. And just kind of how it feels in Mets land right now. Because I feel like everybody's in a really weird spot where we don't know how to feel. We don't know what our vibe should be. Is the season over? Do the Mets have a chance? What's the thoughts for next year? We'll talk about that all today here on episode number 43 of the Mets Up Podcast. Make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at Mets Up, especially because on Twitter we have a giveaway of a Marcus Stroman Tops Tribute stamp of approval card. Yeah, this is a game-worn jersey. Fun fact, this is from when he pitched against the Braves on the Mets through six or seven innings, eight strikeouts, got the win. You can check that out. Uh, we're giving it away on our Twitter at Mets Up, so make sure you're following us over there, as well as if you want to watch a YouTube, a video version of this podcast, which you guys have been doing amazingly, by the way. We're doing awesome on the YouTube channel. Messed up on YouTube, you'll find us. James is currently outside in the woods in Utah recording this podcast, so it is going to be an interesting one for sure. And also, make sure you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Drop us a rating, drop us a review. We appreciate everybody who did in the last episode. Really does help us out, continue the amazing support. So, that's probably my longest intro there, James. Time to bring you in. How you doing? Yeah, that was a pretty long intro. But again, shout out to listeners. You guys got us to 100 ratings and reviews on Apple. That's really cool. Love hearing the feedback that you guys give. Keep sending reviews. If anyone says anything really funny, we will 100% shout you out and just laugh about it on the show. And also, as Mark said, I am out in the suburbs of Utah, not exactly the woods. Mark thinks everything is the woods once you leave, like, New York and New Jersey. But if there's, like, a dog barking or a child screaming or a lawnmower mowing, just bear with me. I'm traveling. Don't have my usual facilities. And I'm just enjoying the great outdoors because we only have a little bit of summer left because we're about to enter September baseball and... We're unsure if the Mets are going to be playing competitive games as we get to this stretch here. Yeah, we just kind of suck. Like, there's just no way around it. This team just kind of sucks right now. And do I think that this team is bad? No. I mean, you guys have listened to 42 episodes of us talk about the Mets. We had very high hopes, and there were good reason to have that. But there's something clearly fundamentally wrong with how this team approaches hitting. And it continued in this Dodgers series. And it got started in Game 1, where again, while our pitching wasn't as awesome as it has been, we still can't score runs. That's what it comes down to every single time. But Taiwan, he scrapped. Yeah, Taiwan kind of 
return to the form that he was in for the last month where he was like something was wrong but he still worked really hard and that's just the bulldog mentality we've come to expect out of Taiwan he only gave up four runs against the Dodgers and he like juiced out six innings when really didn't seem like he had the stuff to get there when the game started a weird development is that he's basically now totally scrapped his two-seam fastball. There's a scream from a child as, as, as we're in the backyard here. He's basically totally scrapped his two-seam fastball in, term, um, in favor of a four-seamer. He threw 42 four-seamers on Thursday night as opposed to just 13 two-seamers, which is such a complete 180 from the Taiwan that was pitching really well in May and June. And it was fine. Like The four-seamer now ran the two-seamer role by not getting any wisps but getting a lot of called strikes. And the two-seamers still got a lot of called strikes on being thrown much less. More than half of the pitches that were thrown wound up being a called strike. So I kind of hope there's a way that Taiwan can marry these two fastballs and create like an all-powerful repertoire of different types of fastballs rather than just throwing 75% fastballs in a game. But otherwise, like he wasn't sharp with the breaking stuff either. Like His slider had no bite at all. You can kind of just see it on television. It had four inches less horizontal break than his season's average and the Dodgers are just a good hitting team like if you're not sharp they're gonna jump on you and that's what they did yeah I think that's part of it like Taiwan the combination of him being a little bit off his game and this is now what the second start of his last few that he's gone up against the Dodgers they're gonna hit you that lineup is just simply way too talented to not score some runs but that being said the Mets had every opportunity in this game to score runs we went up against the Dodgers bullpen which was like a little beleaguered. I mean, they threw Evan Phillips. Again, cr- create a player. Who is that guy? Who the fuck is Evan Phillips? I want I wanted Evan Phillips to get the fuck off my TV screen. I couldn't stand watching this guy get the Mets out. It was so damn annoying. And also because, like, these weren't good relievers pitching. It was Evan Phillips. I don't even remember. I think Corey Kniebel might have started, who's, like, fine. He did, yeah. He was yeah. the opener. VCA might have pitched. Brule might have pitched. And we were getting the bat on the ball at will. We The Mets only struck out five times through the first eight innings of this game before Blake Trinian struck out the side in the ninth because he's disgusting. I'm not going to no Blake Trinian slander on this podcast. But even with those only five strikeouts in eight innings, we had 12 hard-hit balls. This was the game that we don't want to hear the Mets talk about where a lot of balls were just finding gloves. And it wasn't great, but it was just fucking suck. It just felt very Mets-like. The one time we actually are hitting the ball hard, it's just going into gloves. That being said, we still are having some guys in that game that weren't playing well, and this was kind of a theme of this series up until maybe the last few at-bats of the last few games, but Dominic McNeil, struggle bus big time. Mm -hmm. I mean, McNeil, I know at one point I think was four for his last 42, and I even put out a tweet on Twitter talking about how bad it's been, and here's a little perspective for you guys. So McNeil, we love him. Jeff's our guy. We know he's a good ball player, but he hits the ball on the ground too much, and I don't think that's any kind of surprise to anybody. If you've watched him play, he kind of lives on the ground. Whether you agree or disagree with it, here's what you need to know. Against the Dodgers and the Giants in these last three series, he is 3-for-35 at one point. That was up until yesterday. He was 3-for-35. 18 of the 26 balls that he put into play were on the ground. So that's a shockingly high rate of ground balls to begin with. Alarmingly. Insanely. Yeah, way too high. Zero of which, zero, big fat goose egg, resulted in a hit. If you ever wanted to know why hitting the ball on the ground is so significantly worse than hitting the ball in the air, look at these three series and Jeff McNeil's at-bats. It is almost impossible to get a hit a ball or get a hit on a ball on the ground to begin with. It is very impossible to do it against the Dodgers and Giants who shift among the highest in all of Major League Baseball against left-handed hitters, and the Dodgers have the fourth lowest WOBA against left-handed hitter shifts. Giants have sixth lowest. I mean, it's just if you ever wanted to understand why people do get so worked up about hitting the ball in the air or the launch angle swing, which is like so cringe to say, but that's what people know it as. 
this is why. You just cannot be a successful baseball player when you're constantly hitting the ball on the ground. I mean, 18 of 26 balls in play. That's unbelievably high. And then even to put the Dodgers' shifting acumen more into perspective, over the last three seasons, they have one of the lowest batting averages against and Wobas against on balls on the ground. 2019, it was 214. 2020, it was 210. And this year is 221. Their Wobas, again, respectively with those years, are 192, 194, and 201. There's, you're not going to have production against the Dodgers if you're putting the ball on the ground. And that's a lot of what happened to Jeff McNeil in this series. And the last one. Uh, of course, it's kind of been the thing with McNeil this year. He's getting caught in between this player where it's like, okay, I'm the super aggressive, slap the ball around the yard guy, but then you come up against good teams and it just doesn't work. Or he goes into that mode where he's trying to hit home runs and his average does plummet and he's not as consistent and he's getting a little upset because he's not getting those hits. He's in a weird spot. I will say at least he did finish the series strong, had some good at-bats in Game 3 to end it, and some good at-bats in Game 4. So Jeff is looking better. His at-bats to end the series were significantly better than what we saw at the beginning of it, Mm -hmm. starting to lift the ball a little bit more. You got to do that to be successful. There's a reason why it's important. And I think that we've kind of seen Jeff McNeil be caught in between these two types of players for a few years now and kind of... I don't know whether it's intentional or whether it's on accident or whether it's like some type of like sub like subconscious bias where he wants to be a certain type of player. I've mentioned this on the show before, but Alex Bregman talked about this at length a few years ago, right before his <laughs> screaming children. Alex Bregman talked about this at length a few years ago, just before his MVP 2019, where his batting average dropped significantly, but his power was off the charts and reporter asked him like you're not the 320 guy we came to be used to with you over the first couple of years in the league and he was like people don't pay for that it's true hitting home runs earns money if you want to earn money in arbitration as a free agent you really have to be able to put the ball out of the yard a significant amount and i don't know whether this is something that jeff is i know it's something he's aware of but i don't know if it's whether he's something that he's making a conscious effort to do and whether or not that's detracting from his actual talents as more of a slap singles hitter yeah i don't know it, it seems like he's super caught in between maybe doesn't know what to do maybe is trying to do everything and that's what's causing the issues here All I know is Jeff McNeil cannot wait to stop playing the Dodgers and Giants because his average will automatically go up by just not playing them. They're just one of the toughest teams to hit the ball on the ground against. That being said, the other guy we talked about before as well, grouped in here, was Dom Smith. Mm -hmm. I wish I had an answer for why Dom's not good. It's just simply he doesn't hit the ball very hard anymore. He doesn't have a great—he's walked, what, maybe two times now since the All-Star break or whatever it's been, beginning of August— We got hoodwinked, I feel like, and I hate to say it because I love Dom, but I think we got hoodwinked. I don't think so much we got hoodwinked, just that the league has adjusted to Dom, and now it's up to him to take the next step and readjust to the league. And it just comes back to his pitch selection between pitches in the heart of the zone and the shadow of the zone. He just doesn't really swing at the right pitches consistently enough to hit the ball hard. And even the ones he does make contact with, it doesn't seem like he's totally comfortable with either his strategy or his approach or his mindset or just again like the way he's attacking the ball and it's something I really hope changes because I think Dom Smith's floor is still at least a utility player that we can keep on the bench and a good pinch hitter who could play two or three times a week I don't know whether that role is going to be in the outfield because he's just hopeless out there and for some reason again people think that he's improved a lot defensively those are the people who've been hoodwinked bamboozled run amok And if you just want to know about the offensive struggles in this game on both sides, because, again, the Dodgers didn't really hit the ball out of the yard. They're just really good at getting guys home to score and getting timely hits. Pat Mazika hit the furthest ball in this game (laughs) in 356 feet. Pat Mazika. Bushwick Pat Mazika over there. (laughs) Bushwick Pat. Yeah, 
yeah, he, we, we can't have him being the guy who hits the ball the furthest in the game for our team. Mazik is a little, you know, mythical or uh, not mythical. He's a, a myth, a myth legend, a legend. What's the word? <laughs> a folk legend? Folk? Folk, folklore, folk legend. That's what it is. Whatever he is. He's been magical for us, but he cannot have the furthest ball in a game. I truthfully have been kind of impressed by Mazika this week. He's like not really a bad hitter at all. Like he kind of has that long left-handed swing and he can get around on the ball a little bit. Like he has some something of a hit tool. I'm not saying he's like good by any stretch of the imagination. He should be taking the at-bats from Tomas Nido, James McCann, or even possibly Chance Cisco. He's not like this... It's like Fugazi baseball player. It's not guy, Rene Rivera. No, the guy's put in work. He has great numbers in AAA. There's, there's, there's a bat there. There's something. But it didn't really matter because game one, Mets don't score. Mets lose this game. That's all I want to talk about there. There's not a lot of positives. We got shut down by the Dodgers bullpen in a game that they basically said, please, yeah, win it. Try. Take it from us. It's ridiculous. And ridiculous. This, was, this was the game that we circled last episode. It was like, let's win this one. Get to the Dodgers bullpen. Taiwan can be okay. And then that'll give us a good shot for the rest of the series because we knew that we were facing Walker Buehler and Max Scherzer in the next two games, and Walker Buehler just destroyed us. I'm ready to say that he is definitely the most underrated pitcher in baseball, maybe one of the most underrated players. I would make the case that he is top five easily right now. Easily. Yeah, I think he's a top five pitcher in the game for sure. He's just constantly been doing it ever since he got called up. He has been very, very good. He has definitely taken over that role, I think, of the ace of the Dodgers from Clayton Kershaw. I think there's a nice passing of the torch there. Mm-hmm. This is what's crazy about this Dodgers team, though. You talk about Walker Buehler being underrated. They're just full of, I feel like, underrated guys. Even though everyone knows they're good, I don't feel like people understand. Like, Trey Turner, probably the most underrated hitter in baseball. I wrote this, like, four times in our notes. He's literally one of the best players in baseball. And, like, yeah. that really became evident in games two and three especially. Max Muncy, while he did nothing in the series at all, is incredible. Quietly awesome. Potential MVP. There was an argument I used to have with people because I used to say Freddie, well, I still do. Freddie Freeman's the best first baseman in baseball, but they used to say Max Muncy, and I was like, you're just wrong. Max Muncy's like top three at first base right now. Like, there's no way you don't put him in that. He's just so good. Justin Turner is still very good. Will Smith is awesome. I mean, this entire team's Chris sick. Taylor? Yeah. I have some notes I want to get to later on about the Dodgers roster construction, how brilliant it is, so I'll save that. But just again, back to Walker Bueller. There was a time like six or eight weeks ago when the Dodgers season was floundering and they were falling far behind the surging Giants. Trevor Bauer was on administrative leave. Clayton Kershaw was like good, not great. Um, there were a couple other injuries. Oh, Julio Urias was very good, but Dustin May was out for the year. David Price was starting a lot of games. I remember there was a period of time where the Dodgers basically only had three starting pitchers and one of them was Walker Bueller, and he just has continued to be an absolute ace. I said it last episode, and it's still true. The man has gone six innings in every start this season. So who, sick. who the fuck does that? He has only given up more than three earned runs twice all year. And the last time that happened was May 11th. <laughs> oh, my God. It's like, how could this be? Like, it's, it, You almost knew there was literally no chance at all for the Mets in this game, the way the offense has been playing. And then, bang, like like Trey Turner gets, gets the Dodgers on the board in the first inning and just felt dead. Just felt completely dead. And I think that's every start this year for Carlos Carrasco where there's been a run scored against him in the first inning. He's got a little bit of the uh, Stephen Matt syndrome, just not ready for the first inning. Like, But again, it's a lot different. Carrasco's coming back from like major injury. It's still basically a spring training, so I'll, I'll cut him some slack still. Yeah. Like, he did settle in. He settled in like really nicely. The way that Carlos Carrasco has pitched after the first inning in his last three or four starts would be such an amazing development if the Mets were actually good and competing for the playoffs right now and possibly looking at some type of run in the divisional series. There's something very much there. And this is all great for 2022. And that's going to be like a little bit theme of later on this episode. But 
He's still very actively tinkering with his repertoire. He threw 60% four-seam fastballs this game, which is weird because he was throwing a lot more sinkers his last few starts and a lot more breaking pitches. And then he did throw 18 sliders, which was good for like 20-ish percent of all the pitches he threw, probably a little bit more because he didn't throw that many. But 11 of those sliders came after the third inning, and he did give up three runs in those first three innings. So he did find an adjustment, or maybe the slider just didn't feel right pregame, and then it wound up helping him settle through the last couple innings he pitched. And he's finding what works. This guy's a veteran. He has great stuff. He's savvy. And this is this would all be so much cooler if it meant something real. Yeah, if the Mets actually had a chance to make the playoffs, it would be sick if Carlos Carrasco was pitching like this, which is a weird sentence to say because I think they're probably, again, we mentioned it last episode, there's a few Mets fans who are probably a little bit skittish right now about what Carrasco is going to end up being for us. But you got to know that it's his spring training, and he's still looking pretty sharp against one of the best teams in baseball. He's like a bona fide like 2-3 when he's on, and that's the guy we're going to be able to expect next year, which is great because it almost felt like he was going to have a lost season a month ago. Yeah, so that's one positive to take out of this game. The other positive, I guess, too, is that Pete Alonso continues to carry this team on his back. James put out a banger tweet uh, from the messed up Twitter of you know the back soreness or whatever, because that's what Pete's doing. Conforto got a single, Pete hit a home run. And then we just didn't hit again until the eighth inning. Dude, Walker Bueller retired 12 Mets in a row after a Conforto home run followed by a Pete home run followed by a Conforto single all the way until Walker Bueller came out for the eighth inning and gave up a leadoff single to Pat Mazika. And it was just uncompetitive inning after uncompetitive inning. We had no clue. And again, Walker Bueller is one of the five best pitchers in baseball, so you can't really fault the Mets, but just to not even look like apt for the challenge it's so disappointing yeah there's not been a lot of fight from the offense and when there has been fight it's like we're close uh you got in scoring position not interested thank you for playing and even like the inning that we did hit him in the eighth it was like so cheap it was like dinks and doinks and we didn't deserve the hits and runs that we were getting by any means no it was three bullshit hits two that didn't leave the infield and a walk against walker bueller completely out of gas mostly out of gas and vesia who's fine, he's an okay reliever, but there's nothing, nothing, no reason to be scared of him. And we only came away with one run. J.D. Davis got thrown out the plate. Bueller got bailed out, though, that inning with the Jeff McNeil call. That was insane. Right. That, about that was nuts. Because that ball, Jeff McNeil had a great at-bat. Struggling. Big struggle bus at this time. This is before he got the hits and started to break out of the slump a little bit. The ball is an inch and a half, two inches inside on the plate. McNeil's already running to first because he's like, ball four, take your base, base is loaded. Psych, just kidding. Strike three, umpire rings him up. Uh, rookie umpire, I think it was like Nestor Corteja or Corja or something like that. Are you confusing him with the Yankees swingman? No, not Nestor Cortez. It was like Nestor something. Neha, whatever. I don't know how to pronounce his name. But anyway, he stunk the entire game. Stunk this call. McNeil bat flipped, striking out, which is the first time I've ever seen that. He was so mad. I, he was so hot that he got into the dugout, started screaming. Walker Bueller on the next batter complained about a strike call, and McNeil didn't care about the umpire's call. He screamed at Walker Bueller like, fuck you, you, can, you, do, you don't get anything. Like, fuck you, Walker. It was amazing. Like, I love his energy. His energy is crazy. His, he's a borderline psychopath, I would say. <laughs> he's a crazy person. I do love that. He's a guy you want on your team, not a guy you want to play against. And then came to the ninth inning, and we were just not – ready to hit like a super average Kenley Jansen. Kenley Jansen's just like so not that good anymore. He's so not that good. And to lose both of these games close was just like, ugh, ugh, right down there. So many chances. Let's yep. well, get not that many chances because, again, Walker Buehler retired 12 Mets in a row. All of the chances came in game three. It was an absolute barrage of not coming through 
in clutch situations. <laughs> the Mets, just a little stat for this game. The Mets had base runners in eight of the nine innings. Eight of the nine. God, against Max why? Scherzer specifically, we had a man on base every single inning. Why you gotta make me leave, relive this? Brandon Nimmo led off the game with a double and it was not brought around to score. And then immediately, Rich Hill takes him out. Trey Turner, bang, home run. Albert Pujols, bang, home run. Like, what the fuck? I mean, we should have known that once Nimmo got in scoring position, there was no chance he was coming home. Absolutely no, not. None. And, like, he's so incredible. Like, I love Brandon Nimmo so much. He got his OPS over 800 in this game. There's not enough great things we can say about him as a table setter. But I do want to take some time to talk about how the Dodgers have constructed their team, and more specifically, how they were able to get completely free production out of one of the best right-handed hitters of all time in Albert Pujols. This season alone, not even since he joined the Dodgers, this entire season, Albert Pujols has 155 WRC plus against lefties. That means he's 55% better than the average hitter against left-handed pitching, a 962 OPS, and 11 home runs in 117 at-bats. That is a home run rate like home runs per at-bat rate up there with like Vlad and Shohei and the best power hitters in baseball. That's like Pujols' home run rate when he was Albert Pujols. One every 10 at-bats. You talk about like Barry Bonds' 72 home run season. Like he hit one like one every seven at-bats. Like these are crazy numbers to get from a guy who was seemingly a dead duck in Los Angeles with the Angels. And the Dodgers were completely dunked on all over social media, national sports broadcasts and everything for bringing on Albert Pujols. Why would you bring on a guy who could barely play defense and not run? But the Dodgers have set up this roster where they are capable of acquiring cheap talent and cheap production, if by any means necessary, just because of how versatile every player in this roster is. Like We've been saying repeatedly for a few months now that you're going to be able to sign the cheapest and best replacement level players at the corner spots between outfield and infield. And that's how they were able to get Pujols and even a guy like Billy McKinney. And that's because they have so much depth at second base, shortstop, and center field. There's six guys on this team who could play those positions between Chris Taylor, Max Muncy, A.J. Pollock, uh, Cody Bellinger. I feel like I'm forgetting another. Uh, Corey Seager, Trey Turner. I think I'm forgetting another outfield. Well, you know what's also crazy is Mookie could play second base. He's played second base. And center field. Yeah. Like the, And the crazy thing is two of those guys I mentioned are – the Dodgers' natural first basements between Max Muncie and Cody Bellinger. And they're playing positions like shortstop, second, and third exceedingly well. It's so crazy that they've given themselves enough wiggle room on this roster to be able to make a snap decision, get a guy like Albert Pujols again for free, and have him be this good in the small, tiny sample they want to use him in. It is the opposite of the way the Mets have built their team. Because the guys we have in those positions, are there's too many of them, and we cannot bring on the extra talent. Because we have to get rid of a guy like Billy McKinney. We got a decent prospect for him. But we just don't have the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The fluidity. Mets roster doesn't have any fluidity no. to be able to find cheap talent like this. And that's one of the biggest problems in this roster construction. That we that both went completely over our heads preseason. I feel like we thought we had more fluidity than we really did. I think we expected that Dom Smith and Conforto were going to be capable outfielders. So you didn't really have to worry about filling those positions. Even though the Dodgers have way better outfielders and they worried about filling those positions. That was definitely an oversight by the Mets, is the ability for having guys to play basically anywhere. Something that we have lauded Jeff McNeil for. Mm -hmm. The ability to play multiple positions at a pretty decent level. That's something that's going to keep him on a roster. I also think it's worth noting that we talked so much about this in the Giants podcast episode, but how they just go platoon. They'll platoon, guys. The Dodgers saw what the Angels, because that's a godforsaken organization. They're awful. They -hmm. saw what the Angels couldn't. Albert Pujols still had value. Like you said, nobody thought that this guy had anything left in the tank, myself included. 
I thought that Albert Pujols was done. I was like, damn, this sucks. This is the end of Pujols. And they're like, wait, hold on. You can hit left-handed pitching. And not only do you hit it, you destroy it. He's going to be on the playoff roster. Yeah. From being cut by the Angels. And the Angels are another one of those teams who they have like too much fake depth in the corners where they couldn't afford to keep a guy like Pujols even on the bench. And they should be cutting a guy like Pujols and using new talent. Of course, it took them three months between releasing Pujols and bringing up their youngsters, so that logic doesn't make sense at all. But this is just another win for a, a model organization like the Dodgers. Yep. They just push all the right buttons. They really do. When's the last time that you can remember them making a move and being like, that didn't work out? It's got to be one from the last few off-seasons, right? They had to miss something. I don't I mean, know. Bauer, maybe, but yeah, <laughs> it's a little dicey. We're gonna just should, should move, move on. on. We're just gonna move on here. Uh, yeah, they're just good. They're a good organization. It showed by having Albert Pujols hit a home run against us, who's eighty-five years old. I was just sitting there like, damn it, <laughs> fuck. Albert Pujols is so old that it looks like it hurts to run around the bases. It's kind of funny because Albert Pujols still has the exact same batting stance, which is so much more weight in the middle of his body. So he used to be like really trim and like strong and fit and he used to stand up there like he used to look so athletic. And now he just has like a gut. His legs look hope- woefully unathletic. He literally is the slowest player in baseball. Every infielder can play on the outfield against him. But it doesn't matter because one out of every 11 at-bats against a lefty because it's the only time he ever plays, it's going over the wall. Yep, it's unbelievable. Luckily for us, Rich Hill did settle in. It was I mean, fine. Gave up the home runs, but he, again, kept us in this game. And especially with the opportunities we were getting against Max Scherzer, would have been nice to help out Rich Hill. He helped us out for sure. It was great. Throwing 88-mile-an-hour fastballs against the Dodgers and somehow not getting hit was marvelous. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, when we played high school baseball. Like, you'd play, like, one of the, one town I'll use, Linden. They stunk. They were awful at baseball. Their guys would throw, like, 50, 60 miles an hour. It's like, it's too slow. What do we do? We don't know how to hit this. It's too slow. Everyone's popping up. It's like what Rich Hill did against the Dodgers, except like three of them went for home runs. I thought it was also funny that before the game, a lot of Dodgers came over and like really embraced Rich Hill, Clayton Kershaw especially. Like he gave him a massive bear hug. They talked for like five, ten minutes. Like you know, Rich Hill is just one of the best clubhouse guys in baseball. His name's Dick Mountain. I yeah. mean, like if you're gonna if you're gonna put that on the back of your jersey, you're a guy I want to hang out with. Like you're 100%. cool. I'd love to crush a couple beers with Rich Hill, but he did do enough for us to win the game, and we couldn't fucking get it done against Max Scherzer. I said it before, I'll say it again. We had a base runner every single inning, all five of the innings against Max Scherzer, every single one. And he, the Mets were swinging and missing a lot. Like, Max Scherzer was, the stuff was working, but we just kept getting, like, right to the edge and not being able to go over it. And even with all the base runners we had, our only run was on a fucking solo homer. Like, how could that be? Like, damn it. Fuck. Yeah. I felt very defeated after the J.D. Davis strikeout to end the fifth. He just looked like he had no clue what was happening. No. Bases loaded, close game. Scherzer very much on the ropes, very much on the ropes, and just couldn't do it. He just took a lot of pitches that were like, really? Like, that's, you're, you're not going to, what are you looking for? He just, he was not looking good this series as well. Oh, uh, until today. Until today. The other issue here was uh, Miguel Castro came in and was like, I forgot how to pitch. <laughs> I kind of like having Miguel Castro on the roster because he keeps everybody on their toes. He does keep you on your toes. I mean, my dad was so mad watching Miguel Castro pitch. I'm calling you out, Dad. I know I know you hear this, but I need you to be a little embarrassed here. <laughs> he said Miguel Castro sucks, which like he does sometimes. There's yeah. that's a correct statement. But then he said so he was so mad about how Miguel Castro pitched that he questioned our boy Jeremy Hefner. And no, I will not allow that. Never, I will not allow that. Never allowed. Guy, my Jeremy Hefner jersey is gonna be here soon. It's been thirty oh, yeah. days since I, I ordered it from China. So hope hopefully. I really thought we'd have it for a stretch right now. It's gonna be a complete joke as I'm in the as I'm in the ballpark drunk in September. But 
It's just it's the Miguel Castro roller coaster. It's the high leverage reliever roller coaster that the Mets are firmly planted on. Between him, Familia, and May, we have three absolute wild cards who can either walk out there and like look like Mariano Rivera, or just walk three straight batters and call it the night. <laughs> That's it. So bad. And even then, even with how bad it was, we still got out of that inning like, okay. Like, it wasn't too bad. It wasn't. And Alonzo's like, hold on, guys. Let me make this a little bit worse. Let me hit a home run and just make it a little closer so you guys still watch the end of this ball game. Was that the home run that he, like, inside-outed to um right right center? The series is a blur. I, I like, after every game, I tried to black out from what was <laughs> happening because it was, like, pain. It was three, four hours of, like, Again? It's happening again? All I know is Pete hit a home run, and I was like, come on, man. I was ready to turn this game off. Like, Base runners, eight of nine innings. We only scored runs via the homer. Yep. That's shocking. Which is like not Mets baseball because we haven't hit home runs this year, but of course in this game, it was Mets baseball. It would have been great if this was Mets baseball. If we were just hitting more home runs all season without getting hit to run to scoring position, we'd be made in the shade. We'd probably have five or six more wins. All of these losses were so damn close. We scored one, two, and three runs in these games, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and every single time we had multiple chances to beat the fucking Dodgers, we couldn't do it. Well, I think that's the most frustrating part about how we're seeing this team play, and maybe this will build into our talk of 2022 at the end of the podcast here, and that is that we are close. There is, there's... We're hanging with good teams, even despite playing like shit. We're hanging with good teams. And I think that is because the Mets, for these last two weeks, have completely lost all of their star power. Over the last month, just being without Francisco Lindor, and then the last two weeks without Javi. And I'll give Javi the star power uh, name tag, even though maybe he doesn't he doesn't play that way in a day-in, day-out basis. But he does have that top end of his game, where he can get you over a hump when nothing else seems to be working. And this is kind of how the Mets teams were over the last few seasons between 2015 and this offseason, where everything was close and a lot of these guys are good, but like, where's the juice? As something that we've said a lot of times this podcast, where's the fucking juice? Cespedes in 15. Yeah, that uh, was the juice. That was the juice, clearly. And, you know, even in the, the years pa- pro- or after that, we, we need someone to get us over the hump. We were missing it. We lost a series, three losses in a row here. But we got something to get us over the hump in Game 4, because Javi Baez made his triumphant return, and immediately made his impact felt with an RBI double in the top of the first. And I want to note, really good at bat by him. I like to take shots. Everyone does at Javi Baez's plate, appear, or plate approach and his discipline and everything like that. But it was a really good at bat. Worked it 2-0 and was like, I have a pitch to hit. Let me swing. He fouled it back. He missed it or whatever it was. It was right down the middle. But it seemed like there was a thought process there, and then David Price threw like a hanging slider or a changeup, whatever it was, and Javi knocked it for a double over A.J. Pollock's head. It was so nice to see. It looked like he had an idea at the plate, something that not a lot of Mets hitters have been doing. Yeah, and if you kind of take the way that every Mets hitter has regressed this year, but you apply it to the way Javi Baez approaches his game, he could be one of the best players in baseball. Of yeah, course, it might be what he needs. <laughs> there's no transitive property there. Like, There's no way that actually will happen, or maybe like a 5% chance of it. But it's kind of just ironic that if he would just take like 30% more pitches and actually be guessing, he'd probably be a much better baseball player. Might even be elite, honestly. <laughs> Might even be elite. You know what was elite? That slide in his second double. That was elite. The slide, in the, that's what he'll do for you. He'll give you a nice tag, a good slide. Horrid decision athlete. to stretch that into a double. Yeah, terrible. Not not the right idea. That throws on means. the money. He's out by four steps. Oh, by, by a ton. <laughs> but luckily it worked out. And we hit David Price as we should mm-hmm. because he's 36, 37. It's the corpse of David Price, as I said last yeah. episode. He did settle in, actually. Yeah, because you're still facing the Mets. Let's yeah, calm down yeah. here. While we scored three runs in the first inning, and we haven't seen that in probably a couple months, we are still the Mets, so scoring in multiple innings, that's, that's not a lot. 
doesn't happen often. No, and it, it felt like the whole felt like the plane was crashing into the mountain in the sixth inning, and it was all it was all going to be over because, as the Mets have done all season long, we had second and third and nobody out, and we found a way not to score a run. Not interested. We didn't want to do it. No, and. I think there was a very questionable decision by Luis Rojas to not pinch hit for Marcus Stroman with the bases loaded and two men out. One that I was fuming mad about at the time. I thought he should have hit for Stroman. 100%. But he did say after the game that Lugo and Loop were both unavailable. So he basically needed one more inning from Marcus Stroman to just bridge the gap to getting to Familia May Diaz. And it did work out because J.D. Davis bailed him out the next inning. Great game. Really saved his series. But I don't know how how great I feel with that answer. I think maybe more of the issue that we should have had with that inning is that Pilar came to the plate and that we didn't pinch hit Conforto or Dom Smith. Yeah, that I that I agree with too, which is still another issue I have with Rojas managing that inning. Yeah, I think that's probably more of the issue because again, at least he gave us an answer for why Stroma was in and you can you can see the process. That's what we need. We need to see the process. But there's no place in God Green's, God's green earth that Kevin Pilar should be getting in at bat against a right-handed pitcher over Michael Conforto or Dom Smith. I don't care how bad those guys are struggling. And he actually hit it hard. Yeah, I don't care. I mean, it was above 95 <laughs> miles an hour. But, like, we should look at what the Giants did. I don't care what inning it is. When that starting pitcher that we platoon this lineup for comes out of the game, you put the real players back in the lineup. Correct. That's the whole point, is yes. that Kevin Pilar, if he's in there because it's against the lefty, as soon as the lefty's out of the game, he's out of the game. Get him the fuck out. Yeah. <laughs> Yank him by his shirt. <laughs> Whatever it takes. <laughs> Take his bat and break it. <laughs> Just don't allow him to use any bats. Everyone hide their stuff. Fill his helmet with rosin. <laughs> just <laughs> poor Kevin Pilar. He's hit some big hits for us. I know. But, I just I've been picking on Kevin Pilar a lot, but just because, like you said, there's no way that Kevin Pilar could get a hit off Bruce Dargrave. Zero percent chance. Now to keep it a little positive, Stroman still very good, still awesome. He's he's fantastic. He is the only reason. We are even slightly maybe in it still. What a call by your boy that he was the most important player in this team preseason because he has proven that tenfold, and I truly think he's just hit a new gear. Like, he had more sliders and sinkers this game. I've harped on the repertoire over and over and over and over again. Second time in a row that's happened. Only time he's done it back-to-back starts this year, not have his sinker be his most thrown pitch. And this is the mold of a guy who could actually be worth $20 million a year for four or five years. I'll say that honestly. Possibly even like 22 or 23, depending on how the market shapes up. Looking through the last five, ten years of baseball, guys who have thrown tons of sinkers and then learned to throw less have just ascended to unbelievable heights. And all these guys throw much harder than Marcus Stroman, so it's hard to draw an exact parallel. And I'm thinking guys like Brandon Woodruff, Joe Musgrove, Frankie Montes, Sandy Alcantara. Well, even a guy like Corbin Burns, it's not a slider, but it's cutter for him. Cutter, yeah. And for Stroman, he does throw the cutter. He has a slider, and he has a split change. There's enough pitches there that he can command because he still doesn't walk anybody, even though he's throwing, at this point, like almost 60% off-speed pitches. It's marvelous. There is a way that he can become better than he is right now, even at his age, like because he's never relied on velocity anyway. And he's still in, I would call, peak physical form. I don't think that his velocity is going to fall off lower than it is anytime soon. And if you look at the way these guys have manicured their repertoire, Stroman could do something similar. And I would not really feel great right now with Marcus Stroman not in the Mets next year, which is a 180 from where I was six months ago. No, I agree with you. I think the Mets, if there's a guy that this team needs to resign, it's Marcus Stroman. He's got to be a part of this team for the future. You know, there's another guy who needs a contract this offseason. Who's that? Brandon fucking Nemo. Extend Nemo. Extend Nemo. Give this guy... Whatever he wants within reason. Is Would there be 
a reason to extend Nimmo right now. Like, I can't imagine he's going to get too much in arbitration because he just lacks counting numbers. I think he will still do very well in arbitration because his per-game numbers and his season-long averages are still so good over time. There's a stat that Tim Britton dropped. Oh, no, Anthony Tacoma dropped after the game. Two of our three beat reporters we trust, <laughs> along with Disha. Shout out the big three. But the only players who have a higher on-base percentage than Brandon Nimmo over the last four seasons. Four seasons. Yeah, guess. Okay, how many players is it? One, two, three, four, five. Nimmo okay. sixth. Uh, Juan Soto. Yes. Mookie Betts. Yes. Mike Trout. Yes. Ooh, two more. Joey Votto. No. Fuck. Four seasons. He's had a terrible couple seasons. Yeah, but he still gets like 350, 360 every year. The two, the two that you missed are probably the least obvious. One should be more obvious, just it's been a bad 18 months. Christian and the Yellow? other guy, yes, the other guy you've okay. already mentioned this podcast. I already mentioned him. Yeah. Trey Turner? No. Mentioned him briefly. Max Muncy. No. <laughs> Who is it? Freddie Freeman. Oh, yeah. Freddie Freeman's good, too. Yeah. And he's ahead of guys like Bregman, Jose Ramirez, Trey Turner, Max Muncy, other elite hitters in the game. He's so good. He's so fucking good. He is still injury prone, and he will not outlive that tag until he does. Trey Turner was once injury prone, and he's now healthy as hell. <laughs> but... I think it's like very worth it to extend Brandon Nimmo now, buy out his last two years after arbitration, because he debuted late. So if you buy out those years, you're going to get cheaper years between 30 and 32 than you would get if you re-signed him then. So I think it's very worth entering a negotiation with Brandon Nimmo right now to lock him in to probably a higher arbitration rate, because like you said, he wouldn't do as well as he, as he could if he played 140 games a year. But he's so elite on a per-game basis that he has to be the leadoff hitter of this team when he's healthy for the foreseeable future. Remember when we let off Kevin Pillar on opening day? I was seething mad. <laughs> it's unbelievable how this season has gone. This is such a roller coaster. This game was a roller coaster too. Luckily for us, after Stroman came out of the game, we still had the lead and Familia May and Diaz gaga lights yeah. out money cash it was easy. It was like no stress. It was so nice. <laughs> it was weird. <laughs> that is almost like, all right, we're, we're on a 10-game winning streak. Let you guys have one. Also worth noting that we did score more runs after the first inning. Yes. Uh, we got some interesting hits and runs and scores. And what, J.D. Davis hit a home run, I believe? Yeah. That might have been the inside of that home run I was thinking of from Pete. I think that's the one. One of them hit a, like a bizarre home run to right center. It didn't look like it was going out. Somebody. Whoever it Whatever. was. Regardless. It's minutia at this point. But let's win this game. Mm-hmm. And it still sucks. It's mm-hmm. still not good. But damn it, why, we're ending on a high note and you're keeping me interested still. We just have this stretch coming up where we're playing 12 games against the Nationals and the Marlins. And we've seen what the Braves have done over the last two weeks against teams like the Orioles, the Nationals, and the Marlins. And you think in the back of your head, like, it's possible that we can do that. Yeah, the only problem is the Braves also need to lose. <laughs> That's the issue. Braves are so good right now. Like, what the fuck? They are the team that I think everyone was start or thought they were going to see at the beginning of the year. But go figure, it's without Ronald Acuna, who's their best player, arguably. Watching the Braves these last couple weeks makes me sick to my stomach that the Mets couldn't find a way to sign Charlie Morton in the offseason. Charlie Morton couldn't trade for Duvall, Jock Peterson, Jorge, Jorge Soler, Soler. Uh, Eddie Rosario, the, the litany of outfielders that they have, were who they got for nothing. Nothing. Nothing, absolutely nothing. And we were like, Kevin Pillar. Albert Almora Jr., Travis Blankenhorn. That's who we want. We couldn't break up the chemistry in this clubhouse, Mark. Are you kidding me? These guys are all such good friends. Hang the banner up. Best chemistry in the league. We know that. Uh, painful. It's just painful because I don't even know if we play them again. The Braves? Yeah. I really don't know. I have no clue. 
I think maybe we go there. Definitely, I don't know. We might play one more series. It wouldn't make sense not to, truthfully. No, we we have like basically 40 games left. There has to be at least a series against them. Three. Just give me three. Yeah, three games. But I think speaking on this chemistry as well, I think it's worth noting that Stroman shouted out Mazika after mm-hmm. the game for why he pitched so well. Stroman's always a good teammate, always talking highly of his guys. But to shout out Mazika and the work that he's been putting in, I think also is like just a really nice thing to hear. Yeah, definitely. Mazika was thrown into the fire having to fly like midday from Syracuse to San Francisco, an emergency situation. He's been fantastic. Just calls a good game. He's better defensively than I thought. I mentioned before that he's like not awful. He's not good at anything, but he's not bad. He's a fine player to have in your 40-man roster. Yes. Francisco as well. They bo- I think they both did a very good job this series. For these scenarios, they're perfect. Yes. Mets also uh, made some transaction news, which mm-hmm. is interesting. We picked up a reliever, Heath Hembry, who mm-hmm. was on the Cincinnati Reds, and he was with... The Phillies and Red Sox recently as well. Mm-hmm. But he came from the Reds, and you got some notes on him. What do you what do you think about Heath Hembry? Because when I see that name, I go, ugh, but like... Yeah, it's like, ugh, but like at the end of the day, Heath Hembry throws 95 miles an hour with his fastball. He has great ride on it. Some of the highest spin on his forcing fastball in baseball. He has a good slider with lots of break. The Reds told him to throw that slider like 50% of the time rather than the 20-30%. He was throwing it with like the trash organization like the Phillies, so doesn't know what they're doing. And he could just probably be better than the worst reliever in our bullpen. So I think this is a very good signing. Okay. I'm, I'm interested to see what Heath Henry can do. Listen, he can't be that bad, right? Can he be? He can't, he can't be, be worse he than... He can't be pretty bad. He was just cut <laughs> by a team that's yeah, not bad wasn't he pitching well, decent he, le- he leads the Reds, Reds and saves this season. But he had like three awful outings in a row, and they just got him out. Because they had Michael Lorenzen coming back. They picked up Michael Givens, who's pitched well. And Lucas Sesa. Sims came... Sesa, they picked up. Lucas Sims came off the IL, and he's pitched better since then. TJ Antone's coming back soon. So I don't want to say they're flush with bullpen talent. These are not names that strike fear into your boots. But I think they were just like, I would just get rid of Heath Embry. He's fucking Heath Embry. Yeah, I mean, he's better than Jeff Hartlieb, so I'll take that. (laughs) That's exactly where we're at, which is fine. He's supposed to be our last reliever. Now, do we want to go into the question portion here? Because we took some questions from Twitter, Mm -hmm. and we want to answer them from you guys, give you some shout-outs as well, because we... We ended up focusing on these games a lot more than we thought, but it's like 10 minutes a game, which is We like, always do. <laughs> it's 10 minutes a game. That's what just happens. Like 10 yeah. minutes a game, it's going to come out to 40 minutes here. So let's answer these questions on Twitter. And the first mm-hmm. one's coming to us from Top Disney Man, which that's quite the uh, Twitter at. But here we go. Loyal follower. Loyal follower. We pick, I picked all loyal followers. People who I see are always interacting with us on Twitter. Sorry if you don't have a Twitter, get one. You should. It's 2021. But here we go. Top Disney Man. When Lindor comes back, who's on the bench? And I think this is a fair question. Dom, McNeil, Davis, and VR have to fight for the starting spots in left field and third base. Honestly, I think VR deserves third base right now. What do you think? Who do you think? Because obviously it's going to be Lindor, Javi, Alonzo. Mm-hmm. Yes. We have third base open, like he said. And I guess, yeah, that last outfield spot, who who gets those two spots? And this is also assuming that Malcolm Ford is playing again every day, which I think is the right decision. I think it's going to become a lot of a lefty-righty thing, you know? And a lot about who's pitching and what kind of defense we want. If we're facing a left-handed pitcher and Marcus Stroman isn't pitching, then J.D. Davis will be out there as long as he's hitting. If we want more defense there, it's going to be either VR or McNeil, depending on whether or not we're facing a lefty or righty. And I think it's interesting to note that Jeff McNeil has been working out in the outfield recently. Played the outfield today, game four. There you go. So I think that we're going to start to see him and Dom in direct competition for at-bats, which is something that we expected in April. And now it's going to happen in August. So, I don't know. But it's, it's really going to be a game-by-game, matchup-by-matchup basis. Not like we're going to have set stars in any position, because we'd be stupid to. And a lot of it's going to ride hot hand, whether we need defense, whether we need offense, and whether facing a lefty or a righty. Yep. And also, is Guillermo coming back anytime soon? I haven't heard anything. 
I haven't heard anything on him, but if he does, that also throws another wrench into it because he's probably going to play a little third base as well. At least for Marcus Stroman. Yeah. So it's definitely worth thinking about who's going to be at each spot, but I would think on a given day, it's going to be McNeil and left JD at third. I think that's probably their favorable lineup right now. I don't know. Dom's been so bad. I'm... I think we'll see more VR than you than you're leading on. I think, think VR so? has proven to really be a to really have something a lot of guys in this team don't. And That's I think fair. that JD has been so hot and cold at the plate, and he's just he's just not a third baseman. He's just you, really bad there. Do you agree that it's going to be McNeil over Dom more? If I was the manager, that'd be my decision. And I okay. think between short term production, long term production, and just the concept of seniority, it's like a high school baseball team, but it's true. Like, I think that that's McNeil's spot. He's also, he's just a much better defensive outfielder than Tom Smith. He's actually a plus defensive outfielder. Yeah, if it comes down to those two guys in the outfield, it should be McNeil in spades. Definitely. I agree with you. Okay, next question here coming from at Big Blake Season, which is just an insane Twitter handle. Joust Joust for manager is what his name is. I think it's general manager. No, no, it's just manager now. Uh, Okay. Uh, What would you do with Conforto? I feel like giving him a one-year, $5 to $10 million deal, prove it, I didn't read that right. I feel like giving him a one-year, five to ten million dollar prove-it deal wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Worst comes to worst, he's a bench bat for one year. I think that the Mets have a very unique opportunity with Michael Conforto right now. I'm in what I'd call the minority of people who still truly believes in Michael Conforto's talent in the short and long term. I just do. I haven't seen anything really about him physically this year that would lead me to believe a guy who is like a very stable three to four win player who hits between 260 and 280 with good defense and power and great play discipline, will just stop being good altogether. I just I just can't believe it. And I think that, first off, the Mets should 100% off extend him the qualifying offer. There's no doubt in my guarantee. mind that Michael Conforto is worth whatever it wind up being next year, between 18 and $20 million for one year. If someone blows him out of the water with a contract, you get a first-round pick, everyone shakes hands, this was a fun time. But I think that the Mets should really try to undercut Michael Conforto here. Just low ball the shit out of him. Whatever the opposite of the Godfather, make him an offer he can't refuse. Make him an offer that makes him sick to his stomach, but really logical. Like, that's what you should do. Like, literally, tell, get Scott Boris in his puny little peanut head and put it under your fucking boot and just squish him because you know that no one's going to offer Michael Conforto even probably $100 million this offseason. So give him, like, five for 65 and say, take it or leave it. Lock, lock in generational wealth for you, your family, and everyone you've ever known. Or you could just do the qualifying offer, and we'll see if you're good again. I'm in the boat of qualifying offer and smell you later. And I know that's probably not the right way to handle it, because like you said, like yeah, dive deeper into the numbers, and there hasn't been much that's changed, really. But I, I just I got such a bad taste in my mouth. A little bit of what have you done for me recently or lately, and it's just nothing. <laughs> but I, just, I think that even if you're able to get Malcolm Ford on the books for somewhere between 13 and $19 million a year, for five years like his game will age very well just because of his play discipline and the lack of athleticism he's always had here's where I get stuck with this and I'm going to talk about the New York Yankees here for a little bit because they signed Aaron Hicks to a similar sort of contract that you're talking about here which is like that five for or seven for 85 I think they did yeah and while in the short term it doesn't look like a lot of money that's enough though where he has to basically play and you could be getting better players at that position and spending that money on better players. So that's what scares me about like a long-term deal is while it's not a lot, you're still paying him to maybe be bad. I'm going to pour a shit ton of cold water on that comparison you just made because Aaron Hicks, a lot of his value was derived from him being an above-average defensive center fielder. And that was the reason the Yankees did give him that deal, which I believe was in 2018, I want to say. 
conservatively? Yeah, I think it's uh, 2019, I think, maybe. 2019 they gave it to him? I can check right now. 2019 they gave it to him. So after the 2018 season. And that 2018 season, he played 140 games. He almost walked as much as he struck out. He had 27 home runs. And he played great defense, defense center field. He was worth five wins. But that was a pretty big break from everything he's ever done in his career. Ever. No, like, I, I get where you're going. Like, they're not the same player, and by no means do I think that. And Aaron Hicks had, was always incredibly injury-prone. Mike Kunfor, though, is pretty stable. He's had a couple freak things here and there, a couple soft tissues. And a, he had the shoulder thing, which was kind of scary, but it yeah, seems it that that has been put behind him. But, I don't know, I just think that Aaron Hicks's floor was so much lower than Mike Conforto's is right now, especially because you're not relying on good defensive center field. And this will also be dictated by the market and type of contracts that guys like Jorge Soler, Kyle Schwarber, and Tommy Pham are getting. And there's another outfielder out there, Mark Hanna. Charlie Blackman. Charlie Blackman. Like these, like seeing what those guys are getting, because I think Mike Conforto is definitely going to have more value for the next five years than any of them. And that was why he wouldn't sign an extension going into this year. And thank God. That we didn't sign Mike for for two hundred million dollars. Jesus, people would jump be on the roof. People would be screaming in the streets. I just think it's a really unique opportunity here for like a classic buy low, and to do that internally is super rare. And I think the Mets should jump at the opportunity to extend him an offer again, five years, eighty million. I appreciate you being the optimistic one here with Michael Conforto. The podcast needs that. I think I'm just being logical here. I don't think Michael Conforto would be worth five wins ever again. Probably not. But I just think that we could just get a guy who's a good hitter for pretty cheap. Maybe. We'll see. We'll see what the Mets do. But qualifying offer, I think we both agree, no doubt, gotta happen. 100%. Third question here. At across the underscore court, is it a possibility to still take the division? We had it at the beginning of August and lost it by mid-August. Anything is possible. And while that is a sentence that is words put together, no. I'm not going to say like no, 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 because... If we go 10-2 and two against the Nationals and Marlins, we could be like three or four games back, and then we have a month to play. Then if you're three games back with a month to play, anything's possible. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that the Mets can't win the division. I would be shocked. We're seven back. We're seven back. The Braves were seven back like less than two weeks ago. Yeah, but then the, I don't think the Braves have 15 games against the Dodgers and Giants left here. I'm currently pulling up their schedule, so give me a few moments. Yeah. <laughs> And then not to mention, we also have to pass the Phillies. Who I think the Phillies stink, and we will pass them. But that's still a possibility that if everything stays exactly the same, they are ahead of us. The Phillies are exactly what they are. They're going to end the season with between 82 and 86 wins. Yeah. Which, that was always the case. We said that in March, if you would have been listening back then. Like, that Fourth was always Phillies. 100% true. Let's look at this Braves schedule here, though. All right. So the Braves actually do have a very difficult schedule coming up. All right. Tell me what the names are. Yankees. Giants, Dodgers. How many games? That's eight. And then they go to Colorado for four. The Colorado Rockies, who are winning at almost a 700 clip at home. The Rockies have 57 wins. The Mets have 61. That's disgusting. The Braves, similar to us two weeks ago, have not played against San Francisco Giants yet. And we've seen how difficult it is to beat that team. They do still have eight. uh, Let's see how many here. They do still have six remaining games against the Nationals and Marlins, and then a four-game set out in Arizona, and a series at home against the Rockies. So we don't play the Braves. No, we do. Last We play them three games to end the season. Oh, oh boy. I know. Oh, boy. I know. In Atlanta. <laughs> oh, boy. Might be taking a flight down to Atlanta if we're close. <laughs> it, I'm not telling you it's impossible, but the fact that they have to play the Giants six times, the Dodgers three times, and take a trip to Colorado, it's not. And they also go to San Diego, who hasn't been very good, but they're also not bad. Again, this is why this is why you're my yin and yang on this. You, you're, you're keeping it upbeat. You're keeping it possible. Possible. You have hope. I'm hopeless. I'm feeling. The Phillies so actually bad. have a far easier schedule, which is funny. But again, we're not going to bring them up because they're going to end the season with 84 wins. I have no doubt about that. So 
Yeah, they got Diamondbacks, they got Marlins, they got Nationals. The, the Braves got some Diamondbacks here, too. But they go to Arizona. They are taking a West Coast road trip, San Francisco, Arizona, San Diego, from September 17th to the 26th, ahead of a six-game homestand with the Phillies and Mets to end the season. That I have never seen a West Coast trip that late in the year for a contender, truly. Well, as we know, MLB scheduling has been god-awful this year. Good, I'm glad the Braves got a shit schedule. About time someone else got a shit sandwich besides us. So let's see, maybe the Braves will have an awful West Coast trip just like we did, and... We'll have we'll be four games out with six to play and three of them coming against the Braves. Who knows? Who knows? Stranger things have happened. There have been stranger things that have happened. I ho- I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I hope you're right. But boy, am I down. <laughs> I just want to watch some baseball here, man. I want to have some fun here. Last question we got here from Andres Vasquez, who asked maybe thirty questions on this tweet. So Andres, <laughs> I had to pick one because I've never seen someone have the determination. It seems like you might have made this Twitter account to possibly follow us. So I love that. Here you go. Do the Mets need pitching or batting going into the 2020 season more? 2022 season more. I really want to find a polite way to say both. (laughs) (laughs) I would think the Mets need a lot. This all depends on the health of Jacob DeGrom's right elbow. Because the Mets rotation could either go from what I think is one of the best in baseball next year to just woefully average. And it's all going to come on the report of a doctor in the next couple of months. And I don't want this to be a Chris Sale situation where Jacob DeGrom is throwing 93 miles an hour in spring training. And then something catastrophic has to happen then rather than now. I just, I don't want to say these words. I just, as you could tell, I don't want to say any of these things. Will not say it. I will not manifest any of these possibilities here. But if Jacob DeGrom is healthy, and let's just say that we re-sign Noah Syndergaard and Marcus Stroman. Because Noah Syndergaard, we're going to get a discount again because... He's going to take the QO. He has a pitch. He'll take the QO, if not a two-year prove-it deal. Two years, two years for 40, which I think I would give him in a second. Yeah. I will... I, you can give Noah Syndergaard two years for 40, and I'll cook all his meals. Just throw it in. <laughs> Just let him know. I will do anything I will if we can get that deal. I will make his venison for him. I'll hunt the deer myself. <laughs> I will string his cleats. I don't care. <laughs> I will stain his bat. But if you get him and Stroman back, and then you also have Carrasco, and then you also have McGill. Um, Tyler McGill, that is a formidable five, a very formidable five. And Taiwan Walker. That's Then yeah. we have – that is six suddenly. As we've learned this year, you need depth. So you still have to bring in a guy who can just give you consistent innings, someone in the mold of a Lucchese who could just do something for a couple times a week, and then that'll be okay. But the Mets need some impact hitters in impact positions. I'm looking at guys like Carlos Correa, Corey Seager. Um, we mentioned before Conforto, Tommy Pham. No, I don't want Charlie Blackman because I'm certain he's going to be awful outside the course yeah, field. Oh, that, that's at, a fact. At, at this age, yeah. Mark Canha I like a lot. I've seen people throw around the name Chris Taylor, who is so due to be a disappointment in Queens. I, that's what I threw out there. Yeah, same thing with Nick Castellanos. That guy will get swallowed up by City Field and hit 16 home runs next season and play <laughs> awful defense in the outfield after we gave him $30 million and somewhat fucking A's will take Mike Conforto for $15 million a year and he'll be an all-star for the rest of his life. The Mets just have to get really good players. And I'm really, again, going to look at the Corey Seegers, the Carlos Correa's, and Trevor Story, and make one of those guys be your third baseman for the third foreseeable baseman, future. Third baseman or second baseman, depends which way Definitely. we want to go. And we can't, we can't be holding the feelings of guys like Dominic Smith, Jeff McNeil, J.D. Davis at bay. Jeff McNeil is still going to be a very useful member of this team, as probably will Dominic Smith, if neither of them are traded. Same with J.D. Davis, if he's not in the move. But you got to just think about a guy like McNeil as the super utility guy who finds his way into 100 games but we're not we're not bookending him for 140. Yeah, uh, a lot of the guys that we thought were maybe pieces to build around, we have to find them as the guys who are around the other guys that we're building around now. It's no longer building around a core that includes Dom, J.D. Davis, McNeil, Michael Conforto. They are going to be the accessory pieces to the big guys that we have with Alonzo, Lindor, Nimmo. Definitely, and I think that 
switching those roles might even just take some of the pressure off these guys. Like I think about someone like Jay Cronenworth, who came into this season so good. Holy Fernando, shit, Fernando Tatis at shortstop. Hassan Kim was signed. Eric Hosmer making a ton of money at first base. Jerickson Profar was re-signed. There was players all over this Padres team. And Jay Cronenworth didn't really have a very obvious role in opening day. And he almost leads the league in plate appearances right now. And that is just the way it's supposed to be. Chris Taylor also, same exact situation. You have to find Jeff McNeil's role within the roles that those teams have found for those players. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. No, I don't think it is either. I think it would be a very smart way to approach the building of this team as you applauded the Dodgers for doing so. We got to be smarter. That's just something we're going to have to do here. That's all we got from Twitter. Thank you guys for asking us questions, of course. At MetsUp, you can tweet us anything and we'll reply to you as quickly as we can. We're pretty active on there. Let's talk about the Giants series that we got here. We're back in Queens, back in New York, and we're facing those damn Giants again because why not play 25 games in a row against the two best teams in the National League? No, it's just it's a fun scheduling quirk. Who do we got on the mound? What are our pitching matchups? The Mets are riding with Tyler McGill on Tuesday evening, Taiwan Walker on Wednesday evening, and Carlos Carrasco on Thursday evening. So I'm going to let this airplane pass. No flying planes in Utah. <laughs> Might be a chopper. <laughs> Do you hear this thing? Yeah, it's so loud. <laughs> I might leave this in. It's kind of funny. Is it circling? Are they, com- are they, coming, are they coming for us? Oh my god, it's like an army plane. That's really, really cool. Yeah, that thing was zooming. Well, either something cool or something really bad is happening. Yeah, there's a massive air force base in Utah. I think the biggest in the country. Oh, okay. I didn't know it's like, that. Utah's uh, like just a 30, place I probably like won't ever 30, go. 30 miles outside of Salt Lake City. Utah is probably the most beautiful state in the Union. Anyone who enjoys nature, it, it, and to any monicum of a degree, should venture out to Utah because it's fucking beautiful out I'm here. I'm a buildings but, man. That's okay. Some people are. I am too. I just also like the nature. I'm a both. I'm a, I, don't, <laughs> I don't discriminate with my structures. <laughs> but again, we got Tyler McGill on Tuesday night, Tywin Walker on Wednesday night, and got Carlos Carrasco on Thursday night. And that's all good. The, the Giants have yet to name an announcer for Tuesday. I'm expecting that to be Johnny Cueto as he's about ready to come off the IL. Alex Wood on Wednesday, the feared soft-tossing lefty, <laughs> and Kevin Gaussman, another shot at him on Thursday. I'm not going to say we're out of any of these games, but like... This is just the Giants, and they're going to nickel and dime the shit out of us. And we might get Francisco Lindor back, which would be just a massive boost, not only like to our actual gameplay, but to our emotions and the vibes. And the juice that we've talked about that we've missed, the five-win player this team needs. Can we just fucking win two games? I don't fucking care. You want to actually have a season here, win two of these games. The Mets are still one of the better teams in baseball at home. Win two of these fucking games. Grow some goddamn balls, bear down, grit your teeth, and find a way to win two of these games. If you want to talk about being able to flip the script, and completely change an outlook on a player. Francisco Lindor comes back Tuesday, hopefully healthy, because he was supposed to maybe come back today. They said he's going to come back midweek now. He comes back Tuesday and starts the ball out here the last 30, 40 games of the season. Talk about being able to switch the average Mets fan's opinion on a guy. He'll flip it just like that if he can play big here. I thought his quote the other day was pretty interesting about in response to Steve Cohen's uh, criticism of the team. I didn't hear this. You didn't hear this? No, tell me. Oh, I'll read the quote right now. This is good for the podcast because I genuinely also don't know, and I can give you my opinion on Lindor's opinion. <laughs> opinions on opinions. Isn't that what podcasting's all about? Essentially. So here's what Lindor said in response to Steve Cohen criticizing the Mets. We haven't really hit all year long. I haven't performed. I haven't done it. Bottom line, I haven't done what I'm here to do when it comes to the offensive side. Defense, they can't talk to me. Base running, they can't talk to me about that either. But offensively, yeah, criticize me. Say whatever. You're right. You're all right. I'm with them. I have not performed. Hell yeah, I like it accountability, own it. That's the type of shit that you do if you want to indoctrinate yourself to the people in New York. And if he does come back and light the world on fire without the rehab assignment, I don't know. I'll fucking, I'll fucking bat down to the guy. 
Yeah, that can change everyone's opinion real fucking quick. That is for sure, and I hope he does. We've been big fans of Lindor. We still are. We've been talking about how great and how big of a cog he is to this team. It's one of the big points of this episode. Mm-hmm. Show it, Francisco. You got 30, 40 games here coming back. You got your boy Javi playing second base. Anyway, that's where we'll wrap it up here. Thank you guys for listening to episode number 43 of the Mets Up podcast. Make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at Mets Up. If you want to watch the video version, YouTube, Mets Up podcast. You will be able to find us there for a full video version of what you're listening to. If you're listening, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Make sure you follow James on Twitter at Jeter Had No Range. Me, Giraffe Neck Mark with the C because that's the only way to spell it. That's it for episode number 43 of the Messed Up Podcast, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. And we will catch you after this San Francisco Giants series. Peace out. Thanks, guys.